This week, we welcome Ward Cobley, Senior Product Manager at Viavi Solutions, to discuss bringing NetOps into the threat hunt. In the leadership and communications section, companies need to rethink what cybersecurity leadership is. Staff and smaller businesses bogged down by poor communications, top tech conferences to attend in 2020, and more. Business Security Weekly starts now. This is Security Weekly, for security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we explore the business of security to improve the security of business. Your trusted source for actionable insights on leadership, communication, and innovation. Get ready for Business Security Weekly. You know what the biggest cyber risk is for your organization? It's the browser, and your users are in it all the time. Every time a link is clicked, untrusted web code enters your network and runs on your machine, exposing you to risk. What if users had full access to the web but never touched web code? You'd have all the benefit of the web and none of the risk. That's why Authenticate built Silo. It's a browser built in the cloud that runs all web content in a remote, isolated browser that never touches your network or device. With a simple click, your organization is fully protected from all web exploits. Find out more at securityweekly.com forward slash authenticate. That's authentic number eight. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Let the team at Black Hills Information Security test your defenses. With over 10 years of experience in penetration testing, red teaming, and threat hunting, the testers at Black Hills will help you find the holes in your security before the bad guys do. The team at Black Hills cares about educating and sharing their knowledge by creating countless blogs, open source tools, and webcasts for you to learn more about the tradecraft of pen testing and red teaming. Visit securityweekly.com forward Welcome slash to Business Security Weekly. This is to episode number 154, recorded December 2nd, 2019. It is Cyber Monday. I'm your host, Matt Alderman, here in Colorado. Joining me remotely from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island is my co-host, Mr. Paul Asadorian. Hey, Matt. Good to be here. Happy Monday. And joining us via Zoom is my other co-host, Mr. Jason Albuquerque. Hi, everybody. I hope everybody had a great turkey day. Carousel Industries, two weeks in a row for you. I think you're trying to stay out of the weather today. I am. Yeah. We're getting uh we're getting Denver well not Denver level, but Denver type <laughs> weather. Yeah. We have snow. Well, the storm <laughs> that hit me last week is now all there for you guys. So it's a you're welcome. One. Yeah. It's, it's also not, not a quite it's the same not a, magnitude. It's not a good Patriots Monday either, which stinks. I know. It's a, it's a poor Patriots Monday, Paul. It is. I know. Thankfully there's My not too many guys, of them. <laughs> the Buckeyes won. The Broncos somehow pulled it out with fourteen seconds left and then the the uh, the put down at the end of the evening with the the Patriots. Sorry, guys. Mm, happens occasionally. Yeah, it does. 
<laughs> Attend RSA Conference 2020, February 24th to 28th, and join thousands of security professionals, forward-thinking innovators, and solution providers for five days of actionable learning, inspiring conversation, and breakthrough ideas. Register before January 24th and save $900 on a full conference pass. You can save an extra $150 with our discount code. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash RSAC 2020 to register because I'm not reading that registration code. Again, it's too long. Uh, we will also be recording in Broadcast Alley at RSA Conference 2020 as well. You can visit that same landing page, securityweekly.com forward slash RSAC 2020 to book your micro interview or sponsor one of our enterprise shows, which we will be recording from the conference. Also, we're currently running our annual listener feedback survey, please visit securityweekly.com, click the survey tab, and select 2019 listener survey to submit your responses. We really want to hear from our listeners what you like, what you don't like, help us make improvements to continue to improve all of our programming across the entire network. All right, it's time for our guest interview. Ward Cobley, Senior Product Manager for Viavi Solutions, understands the balancing act between network ops and security that ID pros are facing today along with the challenges they have in solving issues due to limited visibility and complexity. His experience in engineering, product management, plus design and marketing give him a unique ability to cut to the heart of the problem and demonstrate solutions that give engineers a sigh of relief. He brings a refreshing bit of humor to that dry technical topic of network performance management and security threat hunting. Ward, welcome to Business Security Weekly. Hey, thanks, Matt. Sorry that bio took up half our segment, but appreciate it. Nice hanging out with you guys. <laughs> That's all right. I mean, we did our prep call this morning. That took up the other half. So, so we're good. Right. <laughs> Actually, when we were preparing for this this morning, because we did do our prep call this morning, you know, obviously, I always like to start with the problem. And as we were talking, one thing that kind of popped out to me that I thought was interesting is a lot of us came out of the networking side of um, operations into security. I did. I know a lot of other people came out of the networking side, right? We were deploying firewalls and IDS and IPS and building DMZs and all this stuff. And a lot of us ended up in security, which I thought was interesting. But one of those little phenomenons that I've seen over the years is this building out security operations centers separate from the network operations center. We already had a knock, but right. then as an industry, we built this thing called the SOC, but they were like, they were in like different places and staffed with different people. And I thought, well, that's kind of silly because don't we need some of that network data to help us in the security operation side? I think we didn't combine them because we didn't want to say snock because it's just not like a fun <laughs> acronym to say. That's probably true. Well, we've answered one question here so far. So we're <laughs> off and running. It is an interesting phenomenon though, isn't it? We, we kind of built this artificial barrier between network and security and now what is one of the most common trends we see when we talk to customers is they're trying to encourage more collaboration between the network team and the security team. So we built the walls for reasons I'm not clear on, but now clearly we've identified that they need to come down. We need to find ways for those teams to work together, to share data sources, to share tools, to share knowledge. Uh, so I think that's what we're seeing. And, and I'll agree with you, Paul. I hope it, I hope it doesn't become a snock. Right. Uh, but, you know, the, the thing is, though, I think that 
when you look at the various groups, right, you've got the help desk very much focused on serving the users. You've got network operations, and they, I mean, they really should only be caring about the network, right? I mean, let's let's all be frank. That's important, right? As much as we have cloud and all this virtualization, the network's still very important. Then you've got systems administration, which I think today largely we call ops, right? And they should be focused on the system aspect of it. I think the reason we have a security operations center and security teams is that from a, a defensive perspective, we need to look at all those areas and correlate it all together. But now with the talent shortage that we've spoken about, through, of course, a lot throughout this year, is that we need to enable certain things in all those teams so that maybe we can have a more effective security team, do more with a smaller security team. I think at least in the past year or so, that's what I've been observing. Yeah, and I would, yeah, I would just Paul, I mean, add a little bit to that if I could. We, I agree with everything you said, but we, we've got some talent over there on the network side that we can yeah. use to fill a critical gap, right? And if, if all the headlines tell us and, and all the real world data tells us that this is one of the most critical shortages we're facing in terms of staffing in the coming year and years perhaps beyond that is to find the security experts. Uh, we've got some network talent over here. Let's go groom them. Let's go enable them. Let's go level those guys up and make them effective in, in the security realm as well. Uh, if we can't go find and we can't go draft a, uh, our starting security expert from whatever source, let's go take the guys we've already got on the team and on the bench and let's let's bring them onto the field. Right. Now, Jason, you work for an organization that basically yeah. merged with a, a lot of those in Rhode Island, some of the most talented network uh, and operations folks. Yeah, folk. that's, that's the key, right? So so that's what we've been doing, right? So we had we had a few drivers to, to, to start a more collaborative um, you know, engagement between the two teams. Now, you know, going back in history, a lot of times we would hear um, either from the industry or from from clients that, you know, they wanted to make sure there was a separation between church and state. So the sock and the knock, right? Making sure that there was that level of oversight and, and ability to influence. So so that's some of the, the history that I've at least heard why we segregated. But you know, there's so many drivers today as to why we're, we're starting cons to consolidate. Number one is that scarce security talent, right? Starting to be able to build a bench from, from the talent you have internally, uh, from your networking staff. And, and, and really, you know, we're at a point now where, where security has to be on everybody's top of mind. So being able to have the network team having security top of mind is, is just, you know, a bonus on top of it. And then, and then you're building that bench. But other drivers are redundant tools, right? The, the NOC had a set of tools, the SOC has a set of tools. How do we, how do we consolidate that and get operational efficiencies there? Um, you know, how do you have folks on both sides of the aisle looking at business risk and be able to communicate business risk upstream to, to the organization? And then visibility, right? Being able to have all of these sets of eyes um, with, with a security uh, focus for the organization. Yeah, I think you did a really good job teeing up the next conversation we're going to have um, with Ward, which is because we needed network data, right? We also saw a bunch of security solutions that were built specifically to go collect network data, but we already had networking tools that was already collecting this network data. And, and so to your point, Jason, right, you had redundancy in tools because I had these very specific deep packet inspection tools that had a security focus and they were I putting them in my sock but I but I had all the same data sitting over in my knock um, so Ward let, let's talk a little bit about how do you take what you already have and just put a different lens on it yeah 
Yeah, great question. And I think it, it in answering it, we can kind of illustrate the, the need to merge the skills and, and the tools and the data sources. So think about what network people typically know. Network people typically know IP communication, right? They they understand how conversations get set up and torn down. Maybe not all of them to that level, right? But the majority of network people understand the basics of that communication. The majority of network people understand what normal behavior looks like from any particular network device. So it's not that big of a stretch to say, let's go use that same skill set, that same knowledge set, and let's just redirect it, use your term, refocus it a little bit. We're not talking about teaching them a whole new language, just a little additional vocabulary in a slightly different dialect. So for instance, uh, I know what a printer should do, whether I'm looking at a, a capture file of traffic from that printer or flow data uh, that it's describing traffic that came to and from that printer. I know what it should do, it's a printer. Uh, it's got pretty well understood behavior patterns. If it starts doing something other than those things, that's probably at least worthy of a look, if, if not uh, describing a potential threat. And you can extend that, right? Printer is a universal example, but let's say I'm a healthcare provider. I know who a patient monitor should talk to. Uh, if I'm in retail banking, I know who my ATM should talk to. If I'm a big retail organization, I know where my point of sale systems should communicate. I have packet data or I have flow data that describes all that for me. All I need is the ability to understand when they're doing something that's not normal. And network people have the skills and the data set, and in most cases, the tools to do that. We just need to allow them to change that focus a little bit in some cases. Yeah, and isn't that like the base definition of a threat hunt, right? You're out on your network looking for things, acting maliciously or suspiciously or different. Um, and, and here you have potentially a whole set of resources in your environment that already have the skill set because they, right. they already know what this stuff looks like, but yet we're not leveraging some of these guys for our threat hunting activities. I think John Strand has dubbed that looking for the outliers and outlaws, outliers. right, in your network. I like that. And, and you think about the different ways we look at traffic for performance and or security, right? I mean, we're essentially looking for for outliers. It's very, you know, basic. When I teach, uh, you know, interns that are coming through that want to do network security, I'm like, here's a whole bunch of dashboards and tools. And they're like, what should I be looking for? I'm like, outliers. I'm like, this is where you start, right? And then you get a lot more advanced as you uh, learn how things work and learn how attackers are behaving, right? But you're looking for the, who are the top talkers in data, who are the least talkers in data, who connected to the most IP addresses, who connected to the least IP addresses, right? And, and just looking at those very basic data points that most tools, whether security or network operations focused, are pretty good at, at showing you that's your first inkling into the threat hunting, essentially. That's an interesting analysis, Paul. I was, as I was listening to you, I was thinking about the example back this last summer with uh, NASA you know, they there was literally a single Raspberry Pi that was sitting on a network that was sending out a trickle of data mm -hmm. over the course of months. Uh, you didn't need someone who was a, a threat hunting guru who knew all the latest and greatest attack signatures to find that. You just need somebody that could flag the fact that we shouldn't have a Raspberry Pi on this network. Uh, and wow, it's been sitting here for months and it's been exfiltrating data to some host that we don't know anything about. 
a basic network person that knew to look for that, knew how to look for that, has the skills, has the data sources, uh, but they just need to look, know how to find that outlaw or that outlier. Yeah. And as we get more advanced, right, we look at the uh, host to host communications that one host on my network, was it talking to one host on the internet or was it talking to a million, right? There's another outliers, right? Looking least uh, frequently occurring and most fre- frequently occurring events and is anomalous to me, Right now, I've been staring at networks and packets for 20 years. Uh, I guess I'm old now, right? And But those things stand out. And I think if we can instill that, and a lot of network people have that, they're just not looking at it from a security lens. And when they look at their data, that one host that's talking to that one host on the internet, and there's a steady stream of data, right? And there's even uh, open source tools and commercial tools, right, that will look inside that data and say, is it roughly the, the same size, right? In like a little scatter plot because there's jitter, right? Is it roughly the same size? I think Viave does some of this analysis, right? Is it roughly yep. like the same size flow going from the same host on my network to uh, one host on the internet? And that was all that it really communicated with during that day. That is usually anomalous, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about different scenarios as I'm listening to you. Think about I've got a bad guy out there somewhere in the wild that starts trying to sweep across my network. Right. Um, works in reverse. Behavior, yeah. What's that? It works in reverse outside it, in, in number of hosts, you know, connecting. Exactly. So I can identify some guy on the outside who's, who's maybe trying to sweep uh, addresses or ports. Right. And I can look and see, okay, it looks like my firewall is doing its job. Right. Mm. But if I see that there's one host on my network that starts just one that starts responding now I'm way more concerned about that one small response right. than I am about that, perhaps, than I am about that whole barrage of attempted communication because now someone's talking. Now potentially data is getting exfiltrated. And so even though it might be a minute amount of traffic, I'm every bit as interested in that as I am that, that guy that's out there uh, throwing frames across a bunch of addresses and ports. It's one of those fundamental principles that we learned early on, right? When you first start doing security investigations, you're like, oh, I want to see the bad things. Like people who are trying to log in and they don't know the, you know, they're using their password and it's failed login attempts. And then you get a senior security person comes along and is like, you know, you should look for the ones that are successful because if that's the wrong person, but they were successful, that's what you want to pay attention to. And it's amazing how we can somewhat lose sight of that and how it gets lost in the sea of data that, that we have today. But those fundamental principles are all still very much applicable to technology. Yeah, and, today. and fundamental data sources can still be our best friend, mm-hmm. right? I can look at something as simple as flow data. And I can see what we just described. I can see a bunch of attempted communications. I can see somebody started replying back. And that's usually data that our network guys have access to. And so, you know, all we need is the ability to kind of pivot from the what I'll call the typical net boat, net flow view of the world, where it's a bunch of top end reports, right? It's top host protocols, conversations. It's the information I'm using for capacity planning, for, uh, you know, QOE verification, whatever the thing may be. Uh, but now, I'm going to use that same data source to say, well, tell me about the things other than my top ends. Tell me about the things that are unusual. And NetFlow as a data source, just as good at, at, it, at that as it is giving me the big picture view of the world. Mm. Right. Now, when we think about how are these tools, the, 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 uh, we'll take your solution for a second, right, Ward? Um, 
obviously you've got all this data, you've got all this information and, and it's serving a need to the, to the NetOps community like you just talked about. Does the view change? What changes for security insights into that same data? Uh, is it just literally a, a way the data is visualized or, or is there more to it than that? It can be that simple. It can be as simple as saying, okay, you know, here are the top 100 devices on my network in terms of traffic volume. Fantastic. Here are the top interfaces. Here are my top sites. And I need those views, right? I need to know that I've got my Boston location is, is running out of, of pipe and I got to do something about it because it's all legitimate use. And I've verified that by looking at the protocol distribution and looking at the sources and destinations. Fantastic. But now let's say for just a second that I use that same information about my Boston site to look for atypical behaviors. Uh, let's say that I've got some profiles set up that says my Boston site has the following classes of devices, and I've created some static definitions that describe how they should behave. And now I'm going to look at that same flow data coming in and out of Boston to say, did any of those profiles that I set up, did I see any exceptions to them? And it's the exact same data. It's just the ability not to focus on the volume measurements, but to focus on other aspects of what flow can tell me, including, hey, here's someone that wouldn't normally be talking on this port to this destination. Oh, and by the way, you know, if we get clever and we can start augmenting that flow data with some basic SNMP analysis, I can tell you where that device is connected on the network. And if I maybe augment that with some enriched flow sources or, or LDAP integration, uh, I can tell you who the user is that's associated with the device. I can tell you the MAC address and manufacture the device. But it's all basic data sources, right? It's all MAC information, ARP information, SNMP acquired data, uh, perhaps tied together with flow, enriched, um, so that now I take these basic data sources that have existed forever, but I'm now leveraging them to get a more complete picture of who's communicating across my network. It's not new stuff. It's just using the old stuff more effectively and more efficiently. Yeah, we saw, we've seen other use cases of this approach um, in the logging space. People coming out of the IT logging environment and realize that, oh, they also have a bunch of security log data in there. Now they're one of the, you know, the largest SIM providers out there because they already had all the log data and they mm -hmm. put this really interesting lens on top of that data to bring out the security use case and, and boom. They, they completely disrupted the SIM market. We're probably getting similar kinds of trends in this network space, right? I mean, I mean, because the network has been around for a long time. We know what the network does. It has standard protocols. I mean, it's just putting a different lens on this thing. Could also be very, very disruptive into some of the existing, uh, into the security space itself. Yeah, I, I agree with that assessment. But an another interesting aspect of what you just described as it relates to SIM tools, um, you know, a lot of times SIM tools were good at taking sort of unstructured log data and, and doing some pretty sophisticated analysis of them, but they weren't as good uh, by, by design, by nature, of taking structured conversation data off the network and doing the same level of analysis without a lot of heavy lifting, um, without a lot of sort of refactoring of the data, a lot of processor intensive work. One of the things we've been doing with some input from our customers is saying, well, what if we could take this fantastic flow data that the network team is using, and what if we could make it a readily ingestible feed into a SIM? 
Uh, what if we could keep the volume levels from being something other than prohibitive? What if we could reformat it in such a way that the SIM can naturally ingest it without a lot of processing requirement? And now we feed that in and allow that SIM tool to, to do what it's good at. For instance, analyzing the number of unique destinations that a specific source address talked to and being able to immediately identify other types of threatening behaviors that it already understands. But now instead of just using log data as a source, it's now actually able to use network conversation data. Now I've just created a, a natural synergy between my network team and my security team, different data sources that they're both familiar with and given them the ability to use and leverage that data source in a single tool, a single platform. Uh, so that's actually something we've been working on lately and uh, we'll probably be wanting to talk to you a little bit more about that in the future. Now, I've formed several hypotheses about how we might detect some of these more advanced backdoor communications channels, right? If you look at the MITRE attack framework, it defines a few. If you go out and start do and do some research on it, like I do, and then talk to your friends, eh, sometimes they're a little cagey about what, the, you know, what it actually means. Uh, uh, actually, uh, Bryson from Scythe had a, a great comment on the, his steganography backdoor on uh, Paul Security Weekly. There are backdoors that use social media, such as Twitter, right? My hypothesis is uh, if you can separate those um, communications channels and compare them to other similar communications channels, could you detect when it's being used as a backdoor versus normal usage? Sounds like, Viava, you're doing some of that research uh, already. Uh, and the shining example I think of that is DNS uh, back, right? Using text records inside of DNS. When you look at the traffic, you can uh, oftentimes clearly see if you're looking that, hey, that host has got some kind of malware or backdoor on it and they're using DNS to get out of the network because it's it just look doesn't look like DNS data when you start uh, looking at it, right? That flow looks uh, um, uh, out of whack when you're looking at all the other DNS data. Now, the other harder things to find would be something like steganography, right? Or some of the more advanced backdoors. Uh, you know, if you work for financials or other targets of nation states, might be something you're probably already thinking about or, you know, maybe have encountered. But how do we know that the rate that I'm sending images, right? Because I think steganography specifically, really hard to find if it's just a message in one image, right? Your chances of finding that are probably pretty slim. But right. if it's a stream of images with streams of, of messages and data encoded in them, is that something that we could pull out? Because now it looks different. And I, I feel like now you've probably crossed over into an area where we might want to talk about complementary data sources. Because mm. part of what you described is, is traffic patterns. And we can identify abnormal traffic patterns with flow. But what flow is not as good at is telling you what those uh, conversations contained. Mm -hmm. But that's where we get into the, the beauty and strength of our old friend, the packet, right? right? If we're taking wire data and we're literally capturing every single frame of a conversation, we have the ability to reconstruct the conversation, replay the conversation, analyze the payload, reconstruct the payload, start doing that level of forensics. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, now I've used perhaps an atypical conversation pattern to identify a suspicious behavior, but I've used the, the wealth of information that's available from wire data to literally see every step that a packet took, every bite that it contained, every flag that was set, whatever the case may be. 
Uh, and that's why those two data sources work so well together. If it's something contained in an image file, Flow is not going to have any awareness of that because it's not thinking at all about what that conversation contained. But if I've got payload, I've got the ability to start reconstructing that and piecing together, you know, what was in that file. And, and now I can get to that level of forensic analysis with that data source. Yeah. And Ward, what you described also is a very common method, right, in a lot of our analysis uh, solutions that takes the first pass over a really large data set and says, potentially malicious, right? Then it goes to the second set with a lot less data and goes, now dig in deeper into this, right? And stores things along the way. Sims uh, have been doing this for a long time, right? Stores that metadata along the way to give the analyst a way to zero in on exactly what they might want to be looking at. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the integration of network traffic in with the SIM at an endpoint, and you cover all of Paul's enchanted quadrants. And some threat intelligence. Got yeah. Remember threat intelligence. Well, nice. most of the SIM vendors do the threat intelligence thing now. It's true. Too, threat, so. threat intel has become largely uh, integrated into conceivably all those different uh, products. Right. So. Exactly. Jason, you've been quiet. I want to give you one last chance for any questions for Ward. No, I mean, from from my perspective, it's it's a great opportunity, right? I mean, someone in my shoes, we're looking at different ways to improve effectiveness, you know, efficiency of the teams, um, you know, reduce those overlapping services and or uh, tools that we have within the environment, and and getting our our two teams to collaborate more. I mean, that's that's the biggest, um, you know, one of the biggest things I'm going into 2020 is getting my network team and my security team just collaborating more, talking more, getting on the same page, speaking the same language, using similar tools, if not the same tools. So, so hearing this is it, you know, it, it really shows that, um, you know, the future of, of these integrated teams is bright, being able to have folks within the same tool sets, uh, same pane of glass, speaking the same language, and everybody working toward the same outcome. Nirvana. Well, I feel like we started there too. Because no one really knew where to put security, you know, 15, yeah. 20 years ago. So oftentimes we get lumped in the network group. And I think at least my experiences are with the teams I worked with. We, we all took advantage of that, right? I was picking people's brains to understand how network protocols worked, right? And they would come to us with problems too and be like, yeah, you got to, like Board was saying, those full packets are valuable. Can you trace down, like I'm working on this issue and I can't figure it out. Can you go look in the full packets and tell me what you see in your tools, right? So we're using each other's respective tools to, mm -hmm. um, you know, help each other achieve our goals. We were looking for security anomalies. They were trying to figure out how to, why the network was broken, right? Yeah, and, and like you said, that's that's fifteen twenty years ago, right? Having those conversations. And then yeah, like somehow, what happened? We we drifted you know, the, apart. The, fief, the fiefdoms began, right? Yeah, the fief, yeah, the fiefdoms began, and we started owning our own domains and protecting our own domains. And there was a level of separation, which you know, over time, just you know, the conversations and communication and collaboration eroded because of that. Um, and and really, nobody owned making sure that collaboration stayed intact. So. Um, you know, that's, that's the fruits of what we, what we did over the last 15 years. And it's nice to see everything starting to come back and become more collaborative. We're going to release a Beatles cover album. All you need is flow. It's going to be one track come together. <laughs> it's going to be the, it's going to be awesome. Love it. <laughs> oh goodness. Ford. Thank you so much for joining us on business security weekly. Hey, my pleasure guys. Thanks for having me. Thanks Ward. If anyone Thank wants to learn more about Viavi Solutions or to access their on-demand webcast to actually see it live in action, please visit securityweekly.com forward slash Viavi. That's V-I-A-V-I. -V -I. 
And with that, we'll take a quick break and then cover the leadership and communications articles for this week. Cloud adoption is ramping up, but prevention-based security isn't enough for the hybrid attack surface. That's why Gartner predicts that 60% of enterprise security budgets will go towards detection and response in 2020. ExtraHop X Cloud delivers cloud-native network detection and response for the hybrid enterprise, the only SaaS-based NDR solution for AWS. Request a 30-day free trial of X Cloud at extrahop.com forward slash trial. That's extrahop.com forward slash trial. Keep your company and products relevant, competitive, and reliable by standardizing your security framework to protect intellectual property, become a reliable business partner, and guard financial and customer information. Standards Connect is an online standards management solution from ANSI. It's standards access simplified. Standards Connect is a cost-saving, fully customizable solution for entrepreneurs and companies that spend $2,000 or more per year on standards and want to translate spend into a subscription model, want to simplify access, search, monitoring, and collaboration, or need a centralized hub of standards for multiple users at one or more locations. Get a free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash ANSI. That's forward slash A-N-S-I. Welcome back again to Business Security Weekly. I am your host, Matt Alderman, joined by Paul Asadorian and Jason Albuquerque. Register for our last webcast of the year with Core Security by going to securityweekly.com. Click the webcast dropdown and select Registration. If you've missed any of our previously recorded webcasts, you can find them in our on-demand library by selecting on-demand from that same webcast drop-down. If you attend any of our webcasts, you will receive one CPE credit per webcast. Also, mark your calendars for our Security Weekly Holiday Extravaganza. On December 19th, yes, I will be in studio and we will be recording or live streaming five one-hour panel discussions with some of the most knowledgeable professionals in the industry. To round out the evening, Ed Scotus will be joining the Security Weekly host to give his annual announcement about the CounterHack Holiday Hack Challenge. We're going to record can, you, those too, right? Not just yes, we them? are going to oh, record okay. them. Yes, we're going to live stream and record. Okay, yes, That's good. we're going to use them at least once more. You can view the live stream <laughs> on our YouTube channel or by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash live. We hope to see you there. All right, let's get into some articles. A um, couple interesting ones. Uh, this week, uh, this first one talks about um, changing the way we think about uh, cybersecurity leadership. Um, and you know, we talk a lot on this show about the need to have a strategic relationship in the organization from a cybersecurity perspective. Jason, we've talked a lot about this with you and your role as both the CIO and the CISO. Um, curious on some of your thoughts uh, on this article. I, I thought they brought up some really good points here on, on for some ways for us to rethink cybersecurity in an organization. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. It was it was a good article. It, it definitely outlined some of the current state that I see um, with with a lot of our, our customers. Right. I mean, um, in in some instances, cybersecurity is still looked at as a back office um, type job. Right. IT operations and, and embedded in IT operations. Um, you know. The, Leaders aren't put in a, a, a strategic level where they can influence the rest of the business units or influence leaders across the business. And, uh, you know, this article really goes through uh, different mindsets that I think, you know, C-level executives and, and CEOs of companies need to go through to kind of raise the bar, right? Raise the bar of, of, of how cyber leaders are positioned and, and really define the why, right? That's, that's a big piece that I took out of this, too, is that as an organization, you have to define 
why your your cybersecurity experts and um, you know your risk management experts are, are are here in the company and what they're protecting and what their you know what their mission is for the for the organization. Yeah, I thought the one that was really interesting is this concept of finding the right leader, right, with with the right needs. You know, a lot of us think about the CISO needing to be technical, but we've seen that trend go away over time, right? They might have come out of the CIO group um, potentially at one time and, and had the technical skills, but that's not as important these days as more of that strategic communication business alignment kind of person, that doesn't necessarily mean you need a technical CISO in some of these organizations. No, I agree, right? And it's it's kind of that, I look at it as that maturity model that many C-level positions have gone through, right? We saw it with the CIO. Um, you know, 25 years ago, the CIO was um, in many cases underneath the finance department because they were a, a reporting arm, right? And, and, and they worked underneath the CFO and they weren't a strategic leader. And they spent many, many years fighting for that uh, that position at the table, that seat at the table to be strategic. And, and they had to let go of some of those those technical skills to do that because then themselves needed to be able to influence the business. They needed to be an evangelist for for IT and in our cases, you know, security, um, really making high level uh, enterprise management decisions. Have, yeah. Have you, it, guys, have you guys seen this though where the C-level position, whatever it could be, and oftentimes I've seen it as the CISO, is really just a figurehead so that the company can claim that we take security seriously, right? We have a, we have a CISO, but that person doesn't have any influence or power or reporting structure to other senior, senior level leaders that allow you to be effective at implementing any type of security for the organization. Have you guys seen that? Yeah, too? I think that's some of the. I think that's some of the downfall of what we're seeing in some instances today, mm. right? Is that is that they bring a CISO on board because they know they have to, right. um, but they're not empowering that that role uh, to have the impact that it should have, right? And that's that's where some organizations are getting in trouble, right? Because and I think some CISO turnover, has- right, is happening in that CISO role that we've seen, largely because they, you know, you maybe don't realize it until you're six months into the job that mm-hmm. it, you're just a figurehead, right? And so oh, people leave. Agreed. And I respect the people that leave that realize that, right? Oh, 100%. I mean, if, if you're walking in the door and, and you're not empowered to embed security across the entire business, um, you know, if you're not empowered to have influence with, with the, the your fellow leaders across, across <laughs> the organization, if you don't have that, I think we mentioned this on a couple of shows too, if you don't have that conduit upstream to, um, you know, the CEO um, or the board of directors, and, and have that ability to, to you know, really have um, strategic conversations with them, you're not an empowered CISO, right? So, so yes, I, I totally respect folks who, who realize that they're put in a position where they're not going to be able to empower the business and not going to be able to in, enable, um, you know, that level of collaboration across all the business units and influence across the business units that, you know, they get up and, and, and they move on to the next, uh, next organization that's going to support security and, and really put security at the forefront and make them a strategic business unit. I think there's some good things for people out looking for a CISO role that they can also use as part of their interview process. Are they going to, is cybersecurity a strategic part of the organization? Are they serious about cybersecurity? Will you have the influence by being positioned correctly in the organization to be successful? You know, what are the expectations from a communication, you know, breaking down some of those barriers? I think those are really good things for CISOs also to be able to look at the organization and say, if you're not serious about these three things, then maybe this isn't the right role for me either, or you're not the right, you know, obviously the right organization for this, uh, for me, just because 
they if if they believe that they need to be in that type of position and the organization's not going to give them that opportunity, then obviously there's not a good fit there. Oh, absolutely. Right. And, and I mean, the article goes into that, right? Number one, you know, positioning of, of that, that cybersecurity leader, um, you know, the location within the, within the organization is, is a big piece. Having the authority to, to actually make change and, and influence, but, you know, how the leadership of the organization, the CEO, the board of directors, incentivize the rest of the organization is a big piece of it too, right? Is, you know, is security supported from the top down? Right? Are, are, is security going to be allowed to be an influencer across the business and, and not operate in a vacuum? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Some good lessons there for both organizations and CISOs alike. Uh, second article, we talk a lot of innovation. Uh, this is a study on, you know, what, what do you, what does it take to do it right? And, and there are a couple, there's a lot in this list, by the way. I'm not going to cover all of yeah. them, but I thought there were a couple that were really interesting. One is focus, right? What, what are, you know, by having and honing your focus uh, in specific areas, uh, innovation activities can be more successful, right? Because you're not just scattering across the board. So I think one aspect in here was focus. But the second one, which I think is even more important, which is collaborating with key internal players, right? Innovation doesn't happen in a bubble. Um, and if you're going to figure out ways to innovate, you have to understand aspects of the business and key internal stakeholders to really figure out what is it that they do, where are ways we can innovate specific areas. Uh, and, and so that those two kind of stuck out right away uh, for me. Well, yeah, no, I agree. The, the, the collaboration piece stuck out big time for me, right? Because it pointed out some, some business units that innovation teams should be aligned with, right? Strategy. Obviously, you need buy-in from the strategic arm of the organization if you're going to you know, make any progress. Um, corporate venture or, or, or capital, right? It, it, it's a funding arm. Of course, you're going to want to have um, you know, collaboration with, with the folks who have the purse strings and, and can provide funding for this. And then the other side was corporate development. M&A teams, right? Because you're going to get to a point where your, innova your innovative team or your innovations team is looking at, do I build it or do I buy it? Right. Yeah, I think, you know, looking at where, uh, how your innovation could be aligned with the business and then getting buy-in is really what this article is saying, right? It's just, if you're going off and innovating and prototyping and no one wants it, when you come back and say, look at this great thing that I built, then it's going to go nowhere. Right. Yeah, and you've wasted yeah. time, right? It, yeah. it didn't add value to the organization. Right. And, and that kind of leads into the third one that I thought was interesting is designing an incentive systems, right? Incentivizing that innovation. And, and that helps to create success in some of these innovative products is because there's incentives built into it. Um, obviously, we yeah. talked about culture and some of the other things they talk about in this article, but I thought it was interesting in thinking about how to incentivize innovation, which was another key piece, I just think it's a little lower on the list because if you don't get those first couple right, uh, it doesn't matter what incentive system you build, it's still not going to work. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. I, honestly, I think I think the the move beyond culture clashes was a good one too because. You know, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, we live in an instant gratification society and we want what we want it now and we want it fast. But what came out of this article is that, listen, you know, innovation is they, they put it in there. It's, it's muscle buildup, right? It's the long haul. Um, one of the things they pointed out was the longer an innovation program survives, the more it shows that it can deliver value and the more the broader company culture accept, accepts that innovation team, right? So it's not, it's not something that, that can be looked at as instant gratification. It needs to be seen as, as the marathon versus the sprint. Yeah. 
Agreed. And then we talk communication. Uh, this uh, article was a research project by Microsoft, I believe, in the UK. Uh, how small teams are are you know really having issues with internal communication. Um, you know, again, these are topics we talk about a lot, but it's interesting to see. You know, twenty. 29%, almost a third in the survey, were stressed by a lack of organization-wide communication. It's not that difficult in a, in small, a small to medium business, business right. to have right. broader organization-wide communication. You know, help your For employees understand Matt, where you're Matt going. Matt is big on this here, and, and I think we do it well, right? And we it's do, easier because it's a small team. and Maybe because Matt and I have personally have worked in larger companies where it's much harder, right? And I think I've seen it work and not work. But even in some of the biggest companies that I work for, they always did at least a quarterly like yes. corporate organization-wide yes. meeting, kind of gave everybody an update on where things were. We so you do mean it those monthly. All hands meetings that we all dreaded when we worked in corporate America. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, I mean, that's the point. That's the point I was going to say, right? Because you know, you can go through and you can have an all hands meeting, but if you didn't truly communicate, right? If you're not a good communicator. And, and, you know, the, the team members aren't seeing value about what's keep being communicated in yep. that all-hands meeting. They're going to leave there with still the same mysteries on their plate, right? Jason, so, you've been to some of the I same all-hands meetings I've been to, <laughs> sounds yeah, like. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's all about adding value and being transparent yes. at the end of the day. And, and, and listen, the teams are going to see right through BS, right? They're going to see through, um, you know, trying to, ha to have conversations and beating around the bush. So, I mean, at the end of the day, there's, there's certain things that you just have to be able to communicate. And, and, and I think it's, it, it's, it's more effective if, if you're communicating transparently, transparently with, with your organization because you don't want teams going out there and making assumptions, right? You want them to have the, the ammunition to know what's really happening within the organization and, and not rely on, you know, people just, just kind of building their own narrative. You want to define your own narrative as a leader. I think yeah. also how effective all-hands meetings have booths. Just saying. <laughs> Helps. We do this every month when I come into studio. I'm the most transparent guy you'll ever see. I mean, we share the numbers every month. We track where we are. Right. It's the opportunity for everybody to know what's going on, raise issues, raise questions. I believe in that transparency because at the end of the day, I'm trying to build trust, and I want us all aligned on where we're going. And in a small business, we are, we're eight, uh, it's, it's, we do it every month. Mm. Uh, this is mm -hmm. not difficult, even in 50, 100, 500 size companies. I know it gets a little harder when you get into the thousands and yeah. you've got remote locations, mm -hmm. but look at technology. We, we yeah. can use technology to help get that word out. But to your point, Jason, exactly. there has to be a level of transparency, openness, honesty that has to happen in order for those meetings to be um, viewed positively by the rest of the organization. And so that's the other piece that has to happen here. Absolutely. I mean, listen, you know, we, we all know what struggle is, right? And if there's struggles or roadblocks that the company is going through, you know, who better to communicate that with, you know, during an all hands meeting? I mean, that's the whole point of an all hands meeting, right? Is to get everybody on the same boat, everybody, you know, rowing toward the same outcome. And, and, you know, what better way to, to, to circle the wagons and have all the troops on board than to be just 100% transparent and say, listen, I mean, we or, need everybody's help here. Or you could send video emails. I mean, I'm just, just saying. Yeah, well, we're, we're going to we'll talk get into about that, that one. <laughs> we'll get into that one. <laughs> 
I brought this one in because I figured if Paul had to record a video for all the emails he has oh, to reply to in his inbox, uh, we'd never see Paul again. I just mount a camera to something, you know, GoPro, or whatever, and I just record all my emails all the time. So I know what it, it says. The first one is know when to send a video email. I know when not to send a video email, and that's when you're in the bathroom. Like that would be rule number one: video emails not allowed. Yep. Yep. Number two would be at the end of PSW on a Thursday night. Wrong time to send a video email. <laughs> <laughs> we we can we can barely talk, let alone recording a video email. I love you, man. My video email. All right. So so we're recording a bunch after the after the holiday party, right? Exactly. Right. It, it, it'll probably be a thank you message because we'll be thanking all of our fans, and we'll just yeah. Anyways, right. I'm, I'm just curious. I've never done one of these. Um, the concept of this is, was interesting, right? Humans are used to talking to each other in, in person, and emails kind of abstracted that away. Um, but I've never used. I, you know what? I, I look at it like this: the, the article definitely um, put a light on the fact that we get way too much email, and email sucks. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, I agree that's, that's that's the bottom line, right? I mean, we need a better solution to that. Uh, recording video email messages, I'm not sure is it. I, I, I like collaboration portals like if, uh, like we're doing right now, right? I mean, this gives us the ability mm. to kind of get that face-to-face, um, be able to see each other, be able to hear the expressions in our voices, see the expressions on our faces, um, and, and interact in a collaborative but a way that we can, we can kind of guide the conversation. I mean, you know, a, a video email is kind of just static in time, commercial is it just like sending a, a youtube link to someone it might be or is there <laughs> might be. better technology for that i don't know i mean first of all you, you, when you, if you think about this you record a video it's bigger than 25 meg it's going to get dropped by the email yep. server anyways right so up, i'm out because th- think about a recording of this i mean this is this is a couple gig right yeah it's so it, all right, so you can't send it efficiently. So then what do you do? Do you have a YouTube channel? You point everybody to it? Anyways, I, I thought it was an interesting concept. I'm just not sure how feasible it is, at least for me and probably for, for the two of you, because we just have yeah. way too much email to get through. I have considered it for uh, like reaching out in our marketing and communications and sales efforts, right? Because we are largely in mm-hmm. entertainment, you know, we're in the entertainment space, although in security. So we should be able to send out, you know, videos to people uh, to communicate our our messaging to certain audiences. But I think there's still logistical issues uh, with this. Also, there's security concerns. You're encouraging people to click on links and things like that. So, yeah, I I think it is interesting to overcome the challenges of email, how we could communicate over video channels rather than email. That that's the key, right? Mm-hmm. The key the key is that the article defined a, a, a truly major problem, at least in my life. Too much is an email. Yep. But uh, but but I'm not sure that these static video email messages are the key. I think it's more collaboration type portals and that type of thing. Yeah, kinda of like a Google Hangouts or a Zoom yeah. uh, where yeah, you can WebEx, actually interact Team, and, Microsoft yeah. Teams, those type of things, yeah. Uh, Jason, enterprises are muddled over cloud security responsibilities. Are you surprised? Yeah, I I am not surprised. Um, you know, it's it, for me. I looked at this, and it's it's really about 
ownership, right? Who, who owns the cloud strategy and who owns the security around the cloud strategy? I mean, we're at a point in time where you have data protection officers, privacy officers, CISOs, heads of compliance. And I think we're, we're at a point where no one stepped up to own it. So we're seeing the effects of nobody owning it. Yeah, I mean, for a long time, the CIOs didn't want the cloud. And so we created the mm-hmm. shadow IT, but the CIOs didn't own it. Then the security guys okay. caught wind of some of this, and, and but they didn't want to own it either. Now you have this DevOps movement where the development teams can literally spin up cloud infrastructure as part of their delivery pipeline, uh, but they don't officially own it. So hey, look, I'm not surprised either. I think there's a lot of confusion in the space about what yeah. kind of security do I get from my cloud providers? And it depends on the type of cloud service you're getting. And then for those things that are left that are your responsibility, who owns them? Is it one team? Is it multiple teams? In, in So I'm not overly surprised. This is obviously going to be a, a trend and something for us to continue to track because as we see more cloud adoption, defining who's going to own some of these different controls to secure these environments yeah. will be an interesting one. And, and I want to be honest. I mean, for the betterment of the of the business and the in the in the clients of the business, somebody needs to step up and own it, right? And and every organization's different, right? Some organizations have privacy officers. Some organizations have data protection officers. Our organization's easy, right? We you know it, it all falls under my team, right? So yeah. there's there's really one or one business unit who who um, just naturally organically has to own it. So we step up to the plate and, and we own it, right? But, and I th- um, but I think you know, owning we're not it, doing ourselves any favors if nobody, if everybody's stepping back and nobody's doing anything. I think owning it is the the wrong term. I think it's someone needs to, to be the leader in this particular space, right? And I think well, this, when I when well, I say owner, when I say own, I mean accountable. Somebody yeah. needs to be accountable for it. Sure, and leaders are in fact accountable, right, for themselves and their team. But I think that oftentimes in security, we're called upon to be that leader and that collaborator, right? Which is why we talk about these articles so much that have similar themes and, and different perspectives on variations of the same theme, right? Because we're often called upon to say, who's going to own cloud? security, right? Who's going to lead it, be accountable for it, and collaborate with all of the different teams, right? That goes into legal, that goes into ops, that goes into network, that goes into development to make sure that we're dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's from a security perspective. Um, that, that oftentimes falls on the security group, largely, uh, that I think we are called upon to be leaders more often than not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we have to do a good job of knowing who's accountable or responsible or, or is a stakeholder and what piece of that cloud strategy, right? Because you're going to be dealing with multiple stakeholders across the business, depending yeah. on you know what type of technology or platform you're talking about. It's that accountability without necessarily a whole lot of control, right? Or Correct. influence, potentially. That's true. It, potentially, especially in a DevOps world. In some instances. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It, it could be very hard to control, but somebody has to be accountable for making sure that security is part of that environment. So uh, it was an interesting article. I think we all know it instinctively because (laughs) we probably deal with it a lot. You, Jason, a lot more than us. In in that combined CIO, CISO role, probably a lot easier in in your environment. But when you've got various groups that could be dealing with cloud, um, Mm -hmm. articulating who's responsible for what is going to be key. Yeah. Yeah. And and, in the, I mean, you, you know, it's, you mentioned it may be a lot easier, but we still run into those instances where, you know, business units are going out there on their own, quote unquote, rogue, right? So we have to be the ones to kind of reel that in and grab some control over it and say, wait a minute, hold on, let's do this in a collaborative fashion, right? As soon as we're finding out that, 
you know, there, there, there may be parts of the organization going out there looking at cloud platforms that we didn't even know about. Yep. Agreed. Uh, last article here is all your conferences for 2020, at least the important ones that this article lays out. I thought this was, this is a, a good summary. We're going to talk about the CISO, but they talk about the CIO. They talk about the cloud mm-hmm. folks. Um, so if you're interested as an executive on where the kind of the biggest events that you should attend for the year, this article does a really good job of kind of summarizing here they are, here's the dates and here's where they are. We know most of these on uh, the security side. Uh, I have not been to Suits and Spooks in DC before. Um, so that's probably the one uh, new one for me that I wasn't aware of. That was a, a new one for of- me too. Yeah. And actually, I, you know, I clicked on the link to see what it was all about and it's pretty interesting. So hmm. let me uh, dig a little bit deeper. I like the recommendation yep. for CISOs to go to DEF CON. I think the, to have that, mm-hmm. you know, do that one community conference uh, a year, to have it be DEF CON because you have access to such a wide variety of different uh, researchers and activities that uh, really can connect you to the community, right? You think about all the different villages uh, at DEF CON, mm-hmm. all the different talks and events that happen uh, that are really researcher and security community focused. I thought that was a good uh, recommendation. Of course, you could do that without attending the big one, right? There's lots, there's a million other uh, more community focused conferences um, besides in particular, right, that you could attend as well. But I thought that was a good recommendation to at least one, not to be the RSA, Black Hat, Gartner, you know, Forrester, Global CISO Executive Summit. Of course, that's where I believe you should put your focus when you're at the CISO level, but have that one or two, right, that you do throughout the year that keep you connected with the community. Yeah, yeah I, mean, and I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I mean, as, as someone who attends those, it's, it's, it's extremely beneficial as a leader um, to be able to, to connect with the community and, and, and really understand what's happening out there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, incredible amount of benefit of going. Yeah, and I think Suits and Spooks is going to be a very interesting public-private balance. So if you're doing yeah. stuff uh, in that, you know, if you're doing stuff with the federal government or some of these other entities, that's probably a really good one to kind of get that uh, kind of both sides of that um, security discussion because, you know, the public side brings in some different stuff that the private side doesn't and vice versa. So, you know, anybody that's dealing in kind of that multidisciplinary, that might be a really good um, show DEFCON, you're going to get a ton of information, and then the rest, we all know them because we're all there. Um, yep. So we'll see you there. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you very much uh, for joining me today, and thank you for joining us. We'll see you at RSA for sure, I'm sure, but we'll see you next week on Business Security Weekly. Thank you.